Fast forward to the end of 2024. Think of your goals. What can you do right now to give yourself the best chance of succeeding? If you want to learn a new language, you absolutely should get Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. I absolutely love Babbel because their courses help me learn real-life conversational skills. It's so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, speak to the locals without having to consult language apps. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time offer for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners, at babbel.com SPP. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. The podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest. I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Hello and welcome to Smart People Podcast, conversations that satisfy your curious mind. Chris Temp here, and thanks for joining us. Excited to bring you this episode. This week we are speaking with Tom Davenport, and Tom is legitimately a really smart guy. Let me tell you a little bit about him. Tom is the President's Distinguished Professor of Information Technology and Management at Babson College. He's also the co-founder of the International Institute for Analytics and a senior advisor to Deloitte. He teaches analytics and big data in executive programs at Babson, Harvard, MIT, and Boston University. He's also written a number of great books. Okay, so that gets the bragging out of the way. In this one, we're going to be talking primarily about his brand new book called Only Humans Need Apply, Winners and Losers in the Age of Smart Machines. So what we're talking about here and what his book talks about is what's going to happen when technology takes our jobs. However, most things you've heard about robots and artificial intelligence tend to paint really dark narratives around the future of work in society. But Tom argues that smart machines can benefit society if we partner and collaborate properly with technology. He explains that the future of increased productivity and business success isn't either human or machine, but it's both. Now, of course, there are some kind of negative connotations. You'll notice I get a little worried given, you know, I got a son, 
does he have to study computer science? Or myself, what happens in 20 years when I'm 50? I don't really like computers that much. But it's a seemingly unbiased opinion of simply what is probably going to happen. And Tom has been studying this stuff for decades. All right, so now that we've whet the appetite for the episode, let me tell you about something else we got for you that's great. We have another webinar coming up. These have been so fantastic. We're trying to ramp them up probably every two or three weeks because it's really incredible to get on the line with a undeniably smart person who has achieved tremendous success in their field to not only hear them give a presentation or a webinar that elsewhere would cost you know thousands of dollars to companies to put them on, and then also to be able to ask them questions, just interact. Hey, this is what's going on in my job. Can you dedicate some time here and answer it for me? Where else can you do that? And this is all about the how-to, how to make you better, smarter, faster, richer, all that good stuff. Okay, so this webinar is on June 3rd, that's a Friday, at 2 p.m. Eastern Time. Please go to smartpeoplepodcast.com slash Patrick to sign up and claim your spot now. Who's putting on this webinar? It is recent guest, Patrick McGinnis. If you haven't listened to this episode, I know that it resonates with our listeners because I hear from you guys. Patrick is a venture capitalist, a serial entrepreneur, author, and global keynote speaker. He's the founder of a venture capital firm, which provides strategic advice to investors and business operations globally. Now, what are we talking about on this webinar? It's all about becoming the 10% entrepreneur. What is that? Well, in The 10% Entrepreneur, Patrick will detail how to invest just 10% of your time and resources and still become a successful entrepreneur without losing a steady paycheck. This goes against that advice of burn the boats. You know, you'll only get what you want if you ditch everything and pour everything you have into it, which both him and I agree is a recipe for stress, oftentimes disaster. You never hear about the guy who tried, failed, and lost everything. Okay, and that happens a lot. So how do you do it on the side as a 10% entrepreneur? We're going to hear from Patrick on this webinar. So again, be sure to go claim your spot because we are going to limit these to a certain amount just to make sure that we maintain that kind of intimate setting and feel where people can ask questions. Go to smartpeoplepodcast.com slash Patrick and reserve your spot for the webinar on June 3rd, that's a Friday, at 2 p.m. Eastern time. Thanks so much for listening, guys. We are at Smart People Pod on Twitter. Feel free to reach out to us and enjoy this show as we talk to Tom Davenport about his new book, Only Humans Need Apply. Well, Tom, thanks so much for being on the show. I really appreciate it, and I can't wait to get into, really dive straight into your book, the, the new book, Only Humans Need Apply. Excited to talk about that. Thanks for being on the show. My pleasure, Chris. So our listeners know we tend to spend a good amount of time up front kind of getting to know the person, but um, you're filling in for us, and we we had you scheduled out for later, so I know we only have 30 minutes, and I want to get to the good stuff. So if that's okay with you, I'd love just, you know, maybe a minute background on what you do, and then we'll, we'll get into this new book. Sure. So I'm a professor at Babson College, uh, a research fellow at MIT. I work with Deloitte as a senior 
advisor. And I basically think of myself as kind of a sociologist of business information. I've worked on business process reengineering, big ERP systems and how to get value out of them, knowledge management, um, knowledge worker productivity, um, and over the last 10 or 15 years, big data and analytics. And I concluded that the world was moving and both the world in general and specifically the world of analytics and big data were moving in this more cognitive direction. So I've been doing research in that area for a couple of years. Well, thank you for that. And thanks for being concise. We don't get that very often. So <laughs> I, it's, it, was, it was nice. And the reason, again, I'm highlighting that is just because your book, you know, we got it in advance. And thanks to you guys for sending it over. I had a chance to read it. Um, it's, you know, the, the idea, okay, we've kind of heard it, right? We got machines coming up. They're going to take some jobs. But man, there's a lot more depth to it than that. And I want to make sure we cover it. So Tell us a little bit about the impetus behind writing this new book, Only Humans Need Apply, Winners and Losers in the Age of Smart Machines. Well, we had um, seen the um, burgeoning literature in this space, um, some of which is quite pessimistic about how um, machines will take an awful lot of our jobs and there's virtually nothing we could do about it. And even in the case where people said, oh, we need to get ready for this. The answer was always, well, just get more education or more STEM education so everybody can be a computer scientist or a data scientist. And we thought that was rather unlikely. And so we started looking around at the sorts of things that people and organizations can actually do about this. We agree that there is a threat to people's jobs from smart machines and um, not a good idea to be complacent about it and to try to ignore it. So um, the book is really devoted to, I think, early on trying to persuade you that there is an issue. And then the rest of the book is focused on what people and organizations can do about it. Do you find that people need persuading when it comes to, hey, this is going to happen? I mean, because it's pretty obvious, in my opinion. Well, it should be. I saw recently a Pew Research Center study that I forget the exact numbers, but it was something like 70% of uh, the survey respondents agreed that computers would take a lot of jobs within the next uh, 20 years or so, but only 30% believed that it would take their job. Yes, that's <laughs> yes, that's what I was going to say. As I was asking a question, I go, well, it seems obvious, but Ah, it's not going to happen to me. <laughs> yeah, it's obvious in principle, but uh, not for uh, you know real real people. I think so. Yeah, and it's a it's a kind of an abstract threat, and we've been sort of hearing about it for a while. There've been movies and books about artificially intelligent machines for a long time, and precious few people have actually lost a job as a result of these technologies. So I think there um, is both concern and skepticism that it will happen, you know, within our lifetimes or our work lives anyway. So I'm going to go straight into this question, which I kind of imagined would happen later, but it's just burning. And, and this is so oftentimes the idea behind technology taking people's jobs People say, well, look what happened, say, from the industrial age to, you know, the knowledge worker age. 
how many jobs we lost to machines, which is true. But um, in the same token, I also look at, you know, the poorest person today, I think, is better off than the poorest person 60, 70 years ago. And so can it be said that although we might lose jobs, and I know we're going to get into how you kind of shield yourself from that, but although we might lose them, we will be better off because the cost of things will go down, efficiency will go up, um, we will have more opportunity, more information, quicker speeds, more connectedness, etc. So even at the baseline level, we will be better off. What would you say to that statement? Well, I think in some ways that's true. And even beyond that, um, some of these machines have the potential of doing things like um, you know, curing cancer or um, certainly treating it much more effectively and uh, perhaps that even more elusive goal of getting us um, uh, ads and promotions that we actually want. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so I, you know, I think there are lots of potential gains, but there are a few issues with it. One, um, I think it's probably true that these machines will lead to even greater levels of inequality than we mm. have now. And, you know, even if you are um, better off by every material standard, if you're comparing yourself to other people, you may not feel better off. Wow. Uh, and I think if you do lose a job, even if we manage to provide a some sort of, you know, guaranteed income for you, um, there's a lot of research suggesting that jobs are incredibly important to people's well-being. You know, it was rated number one in a Gallup survey over family and religion and so on. Having a good job was the most important thing in life. So um, I'm not sure that even if we have um, the ability to keep people alive um, and, you know, in shelter and so on, that we'll be happy if we if we don't have some jobs as well. Thank you for that. That was really enlightening, actually, because I tend to look at things extremely you know, pragmatically, right? And so I'm thinking, look, even if I make less money because my job got outsourced and I, you know, whatever it is, I mean, the cost of things today, not everything, but for example, I started a nonprofit. The ability to do that was only available due to technology. You know, everything, Google Drive being free and, you know, hosting so inexpensive and Use Upwork and you can get contractors. So I'm thinking I might have less money, but it'll cost less to do things. But even if that that argument may remain, but I might not feel better off because as inequality grows, I compare myself. I keep striving for more. I feel more, you know, disenfranchised with the community, I guess. And so that's what it's all about. That makes a lot of sense. Well, and I think that probably has something to do with the current political situation Mm -hmm. in the presidential election people may be better off but they're pissed yeah Um, yeah and they're they want to do something about it with either sanders or or trump the more moderate candidates just didn't succeed at all you really just dropped a knowledge bomb on me there i'm I'm still (laughs) because because i've always thought that i'm like why is everybody complaining i mean look i understand there's a lot of bad stuff going on out there so i don't i don't want to downplay that but in terms of being better off, I've always wondered that. And you're right. It's the comparison model. It's the power being taken out of their hands. Actually, let's talk about that because me and my dad had a conversation on this the other day. 
you know, if machines start taking over, the people who own those machines are going to own everything, and the people who own those machines are going to be fewer and far between, fewer and further between, whatever, <laughs> um, because, you know, you need less people. So how do we deal with that? Well, I, you know, there is some good news in the sense that these occupational changes tend to take quite a while um, to really come to fruition. I mean, my favorite statistic about that is in 1980, we had about half a million bank tellers. And in 2016, we have about half a million bank tellers. What? Um, despite a ton of, you know, ATMs and online banking and so on. So um, now the trick is the catch is that we have about 50% more people in the United States than we had mm. Um, in 1980. So um, they obviously haven't kept up with the growth of population, but you know, people find other things to do and um, move upstream a little bit in terms of doing less um, transactional stuff. So th it's pretty rare that entire jobs get wiped out overnight. Uh, that's um, one bit of good news. And you know, I think it's possible that we will have um, some personally empowering smart machines as well. You know, some uh, personal robots or uh, my co-author, Julia Kirby, um, has um, talked about the whole idea of, you know, bring your own robot, just like the bring your own device movement into the workplace. So we may have some things that lead to some individual empowerment as well. But in general, I agree with you. It's a, pot a, a potential problem that the, you know, the so-called owners of the means of production, <laughs> to use a mm -hmm. Marxist term, uh, will um, own more and more of the means of production when these smart machines really come to the workplace. Do you touch on at all in your research, your work, how politics will play a role in this in terms of, or I guess government, in terms of are we going to have to look at how we share wealth more just in that this is setting us up for in my opinion a, a really wide gap in the the very few at the top who own everything and everyone else who really doesn't know what to do doesn't have a good paying job yeah we do talk about it um in the last chapter of the book i mean we're um, i guess uh neither my co-author nor i are particularly big believers in the U.S. government as uh, a source of rapid response to problems <laughs> these days. Um, so we, we really try to equip individuals with the ability to, to do something, have greater agency about these issues. But um, we do talk about that issue some um, at the end of the book, and our belief is that something probably will have to be done by governments. And there are um, you know, Switzerland is on the verge of instituting a guaranteed national income, for example. There have been various tests about that. In the U.S., um, I think one of the disturbing trends is that what you find, you know, you, you think, well, when people have a guaranteed income, they would just, um, you know, be able to uh, enjoy themselves more, uh, go fishing, um, uh, write a play, Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. You know, have more social activities. Turns out, in general, when people have a guaranteed income, they watch more TV. Really? 
Yeah, that's kind of disturbing news. Oh, okay. So let's let's hone in on this for a minute. And I, you know, for those that haven't heard, again, I was just just learning about this. But the idea of Switzerland, they have there is is that going to happen? That they're going to give every person who lives there a guaranteed amount of money, essentially a salary, no matter what. I believe so. I don't know the exact date, but okay. I know that there is a plan to to put it into effect. Okay, so I had heard that and then yes, my mind went to and I know what I would do with that. It would free up, you know, and I, I love thinking about the brain and know a little bit about it. If you know, if you're in that state of fear, you can't really think, create, innovate, all that good stuff. Because you're constantly just thinking about how to survive and, you know, all that. So I would think, okay, I got money, I you know, enough money to survive. Now let me create. Let me be creative. Let me add to society. It, maybe that's true for me, maybe not, but for what you're saying, on the whole, that is not what happens. Well, yeah, we have you know, we have limited experience with these guaranteed income programs, but um, at least the biggest one in the U.S. that was the the primary result. Wow. So are we just lazy? <laughs> I mean, really? Well, I, you know, I think it takes a lot of initiative to do that sort of thing, and you know, we're less social as a society than we ever have been before. Robert Putnam has written a lot about this, this idea of, you know, we used to have um, all sorts of social affiliations and now we're, quote, bowling alone, um, we, bowling leagues and many other um, social organizations have largely vanished in the U.S. and we sit at home and, and watch television. Wow. Uh, and And I mean it. It makes sense. Although for those of you out there that, you know, you're extroverts, it's I was just hearing that they're they're saying that uh, having a community and connection to others is just as important as essentially sleeping or eating in terms of our survival. Yeah. And so, you know, what we argue in this book is that instead of guaranteed incomes or in addition to guaranteed incomes, we also need some kind of guaranteed activity, uh, you know, job, if you will, to give people some um, purpose in life and some social outlet. And, you know, that worked pretty well in the depression in the U.S. We had all these groups like the uh, um, Civilian Conservation Corps and the Works Progress Administration and so on. And so um, we think that would probably be better than just, uh, you know, sending out a check or uh, bank deposit every month. Yeah. Oh, this will be interesting. It's definitely a time in flux for the world. Exactly. I mean, so getting back to, I guess, originally, we did not take a linear path here, but my you know listeners, they're, they're used to that. So <laughs> let's talk about smart machines in general. Um, first, what, it, what does that mean? What does that term really encompass? Well, it's um, a typically a computer. I mean, we talk about robots, but the vast majority of these things are just computers. And um, it's when they uh, make decisions or take actions that were typically only possible by humans. Um, some people call them cognitive technologies because they have some of the same functions of the brain. You know, they don't function the same way that the human brain does by any means. But we're definitely starting to encroach upon activities that were were done by you know smart people to use the title that you that you like. <laughs> Indeed, I do. 
So, okay, that's the smart machines. And one of the things you talk about in your book is it's not just these kind of jobs that are hanging on that technology is going to take over. I mean, it could be some serious knowledge worker stuff. What are, explain for the listeners, what are some of the jobs you see being taken over essentially by technology that we might not have imagined? Well, you know, that's all those jobs that your mom and dad wanted you to have, <laughs> uh, doctor, lawyer, accountant, um, marketer, journalist, um, all of those have significant components that are automatable now. And, you know, we uh, point out quite frequently that computers tend to take over tasks more than entire jobs. But, you know, if you're job primarily consists of a task that can be done by one of those machines, then, you know, you're, even though you're in one of these highly educated um, professions, chances are pretty good that, that at least some people will lose their jobs in that field. Hmm. Yeah. Cause I always think of, I was having this conversation recently. The first job that I feel like would have a major impact is when we get driverless cars, all of the people who drive you around. So, you know, it used to be cabs. Now it can also include Uber and Lyft and all that. Because oftentimes those are, you know, first generation immigrants. Um, they work extremely hard. They make barely a livable wage. But but that's the intro, I think, into a lot of the, uh, you know, American economy. What I mean, did you look at from that level on up what will happen? Well, yeah, I mean, we we. Talk um, primarily in the book about knowledge workers, just because that's always been viewed as kind of a refuge. Right. Uh, you know, we could always move upstream, and um, we, we point out there's no further upstream we can go mm-hmm. in those kinds of jobs. But um, uh, there is undeniably an issue about um, people lower level on the pay and prestige scale, and. I was reading in the paper this morning about long-distance truck drivers being threatened, um, three million of them in the U.S., and you're right, um, you know, those people are going to have a tough time, I think, finding other things to do, even in, you know, the traditional refuge has been these kind of um, low, lower-end food service jobs, mm-hmm. uh, flipping burgers, as we sometimes call it, and there are automated, you know, burger makers that some um, companies are introducing now. So, yeah, it's going to be, I think, quite tricky for the people at the lower end of the scale. And and we also found that uh, it's a big problem for entry-level jobs in any profession. They're the ones that will suffer the most because, you know, they have the lowest level of skills and they tend to do things that are somewhat, um, uh, you know, structured in nature, so uh, entry level accountants and financial analysts, analysts and marketers, and so on. A lot of those jobs just won't exist. Now, please excuse this break as we have a brief message from one of our favorite sponsors, Igloo. We all struggle with productivity. We're constantly under pressure to accomplish more and do it faster. And there's no one definitive way to accomplish that. So we devise our own methods to make things work. Well, Igloo can help you keep doing things your way, only better. Collaboration shouldn't be painful. Igloo is an intranet you'll actually like. Igloo connects people to three things. Each other, information, 
and processes. Everyone has access to what they need using tools they already know. And it's a representation of your brand and culture, so it looks and feels like you, not like some random software that you brought in. Trust me, John and I have tried it. It will streamline anything from the small to the large business operations. So just sign up now and try it for free. What do you have to lose? You got everything to gain. Go to igloosoftware.com slash smart people. Again, make sure you go to igloosoftware.com slash smart people so you can try it for free and they know you heard it here. Thanks for supporting the show. Thanks to Igloo. Let's get back to the episode. And so maybe, I mean, I'm just brainstorming here. It'll be like, okay, you have to, when you come in, you can no longer be entry level. You have to be, you know, well-educated. And in order to do that, you have to have more formal education. So that's longer. So more costly because we know that is broken. I mean, you're really, you're really making me feel a little bit depressed here. I'm going to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> well, sorry about that. You know, I will maybe if we keep talking, I'll yes. come up with some things that'll cheer you up a little bit. Well, I do want to talk about the solution a little bit, but uh, and we'll we'll get to that. But the thing I'm I'm also thinking about is I don't like computers. Okay, I never have. I remember when I was young, my dad and my brother you know, talking about computer stuff. And I just thought like, give me a baseball. Right. So I would, I worry that is that all there's going to be left? Like I have a son is my only hope now, Hey, force him into computer science or coding or whatever. And then he should be, you know, fairly well off. But aside from that, everything else is gone. We don't think so. And in fact, you know, if you force everybody into these, um, STEM-oriented uh, educations, then what you're really doing is forcing them into jobs that computers do better than we do. You know, you know computers will be able to program. They're already able to do math a lot uh, better and faster than we are, logical thinking and so on. So I, we think there will be a number of jobs that um, people should prepare for that involves sort of, you know, an end run around computers. Hmm. And what what would those jobs be? So let's get into the good news. Where should we start looking for the let's start with knowledge workers, because I know just from knowing our audience, that's most people, you know, educated, fairly successful, maybe entrepreneurs. Uh, what, what should they do to prepare themselves and or their children? Um, we think that there are going to be five categories of, of jobs that will be, you know, relatively safe. And um, starting with the one that that you might gravitate towards mm. if you take computers, um, we call it um, stepping aside. It's doing things that computers are unlikely to be able to do anytime soon. We already have a lot of jobs like this, but um, uh, let's hope they will continue and maybe be more of them. So, you know, very creative jobs, very empathy-oriented jobs. Um, humans like to deal with other humans in terms of caring-oriented situations. Yes, yes. Uh, and so I think those jobs will continue, and they have historically been not terribly well-paid for the most part, but, um, you know, that might also be something that the government needs to address a bit. You know, I'm glad you covered that because that was actually going to be my next question, which was, Given how strongly we all know connection is, even if technology is forcing us to be less connected in person, I, I feel like people will always pay other people 
to do a certain number of things. So maybe it's not, you know, I don't know, drive my car, but a certain amount of interaction just has to prevail. Maybe I'm being, uh, you know, an optimist here. Um, well, you are not alone <laughs> in that regard. I mean, there's a book by Jeff um, Colvin um, that takes that same approach and argues that there will be some categories of work that um, will be done by humans just because other humans prefer that humans do that work. Um, you know, humans may be able to uh, apply the rules of logic in a courtroom to come up with a decision about, you know, life or death or something for a an accused um, criminal, but most people probably would not be that comfortable with a computer making that decision. Uh-huh. Or com- computers may be able to paint a painting, but um, we probably pay more for one that was done by a human. And what about that, that argument, again, pretty longstanding argument here that Throughout time, as certain jobs leave, new jobs come in. And I'm just thinking about, say, for example, all the advances this technology is going to give us in medicine or in healthcare. We are probably going to need people then to, I don't know, take that higher level cognition. What am I missing there? Well, there will be some of those jobs, and we, um, you know, we talk about them as. Uh, um, Stepping up jobs that mean you're kind of overlooking how these systems work. As you say, the higher level cognition, you know, our primary example is sort of a a hedge fund manager. Even though all the trades of stocks and bonds might be done by a computer, somebody's got to look out for the entire portfolio. And, you know, we've rewarded those jobs extraordinarily well, probably too well. Um, uh, But I think, um, are there going to be enough to prevent uh, some social dislocation? I, I'm not sure. I don't think anybody knows. The, the fact is, even if great jobs come back, um, it doesn't mean that people aren't suffering in the meantime. And, you know, yeah. you can read some of Charles Dickens' books to see what it was like in the Industrial Revolution. Yes, the jobs came back, but people were pretty miserable, you know, when their jobs went away, waiting for those jobs to come back. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense, and I, I I could definitely see that happening. Just the transition. I mean, people don't like change, especially if you're older. You've spent a lot of time doing this. I actually get worried. You know, say we're talking 20 years from now, I'll be at the tail end of my career, but not near retirement. <laughs> so I might be screwed if I don't make enough money in the in the interim. Yeah, <laughs> well, you know, um, one approach um, that we think is kind of the core. Um, augmentation-oriented job as opposed to automation is really learning about how machines work. You may have to overcome some of your distaste for computers, Mm. but learning how machines work and um, we call that stepping in, monitoring them day-to-day, making them your your kind of day-to-day colleague in a sense. Um, If they need to be improved, then you make those improvements. You learn enough about them so that you can um, do that sort of, of change in them. And, you know, this is not a new idea. It's been, um, it was the same way in the Industrial Revolution. Um, I've read it, some economic historians who say people who knew how, for example, textile machinery worked and could improve it, configure it, fix it, um, there was a huge demand for them. And in fact, 
the Industrial Revolution would have gotten to much higher levels of productivity much faster if we'd had more of those kinds of people. Mm. So um, I, we think that's kind of a core job in this new, you know, intelligent machine economy, um, working very closely with machines almost as, as colleagues. One question I have for you. So I'm reading Elon Musk's biography. And he talks about, he actually thinks, uh, I'm going to forget which founder it was, but one of the founders of Google is going to create the machine that is bad for humanity, meaning it's smarter than us and it doesn't really care about us. Have you looked at kind of, you know, because in in what we've been talking about, it's, yeah, computers are great, but it's they're still going to need humans for some things. We're going to, you know, need them and blah blah blah. But what about when they surpass us in all capacity? Which is I mean, do you think that's even going to happen? I do, but uh I'll probably be dead by mm-hmm, then. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I I'm guessing it's in the 35-40 year uh range, but I think it will happen at some point. And then what? Then what happens? Well, you know, I do, while I think that it's a little bit early to um, speculate in great detail about it, I do think Elon Musk is to be commended for, you know, raising the issue. And I guess he threw 10 million bucks into this organization called the Future of Life Institute to address some of these issues. Um, You know, we could, um, if we were Um, smart and moral about it, we could sort of program in some moral sense into these machines. I was um, listening to the radio the other day and somebody was saying that there will be a demand for um, kind of moral philosophy companies that will have moral philosophy software that you could download into your robot or or smart machine. I love that. Yeah, it's a cool idea. There's a new job. You need people who are not only empathetic and moral, but also can put it in computer terms or coding yeah. terms. Yeah, which, you know, is a form of what we're talking about. I, I suspect most moral philosophers feel the same way about computers that you do, Chris, <laughs> yeah. but um, some of them will probably um, be able to overcome that and will have a pretty good job in the future. That's really incredible. So, Tom, I kind of want to now step back. I mean, I, I've covered a lot of this book, but since we have a few more minutes, I also wanted to ask you just, you know, over the years, you've been really studying about data it, for for decades, I would say, probably. Is that right? Sad but true, yes. Yeah. Well, and you've seen kind of the growth curve of this. What have you learned in, say, you know, again, I don't know the exact time, but the past few decades you've been doing this before even technology was a huge part of what we're doing to now and in the future, like what have you learned through that experience um, in terms of how it's affected us and how it will continue to affect us for better or for worse? Well, you know, there's there's a lot of um, uh, techno optimism, almost techno utopianism out there that, you know, uh, will have, um, perfectly personalized marketing and, you know, even in this area of, of automation, uh, you know, we'll be able to serve people effectively at very little cost. But the fact is we, we often screw it up and, you know, every day we get tons of, of, uh, marketing messages that are pretty much irrelevant to us, um, 
one day I got actually a discount uh, offer for a restaurant that I really loved. And uh, it's almost um, a tear came out of my eye. It's such a rare mm. occasion to get something you really want. Yes. Um, um, I, you know, in call center, automated call centers, and, you know, we're always, you know, pressing zero, yelling agent, you know, whatever <laughs> to try to get around them. So, um, and I think that will continue to be the case for a while. I think um, automation will be awkward and rough in many cases, as it is, you know, with Siri and and um, some of the other um, technologies we have for interfacing with, with machines. So, you know, I think that there will still be a preference in many cases for dealing with humans. Um, but, you know, let's face it, there are the world has gotten to be a very complex place. If you're doing digital marketing, there's no way a human could tr even think about trying to place a customized ad on the web webpage mm -hmm. of every everyone you visit. It's just way too much data, way too much analysis in way too short a time. In cancer care, there are over 400 types of cancer now. Um, if you start thinking about your genome and your proteome and your biome and how they all affect cancer, there's no way a human can keep all that in their in their head. So um, I, I think humans augmented with technology can be very powerful. Just technology alone, I think, is often quite frustrating. Yeah, and actually, as you went through that, I'm thinking, I mean, sometimes I feel like the technology, we, we rely on it so much, and it's not at, at I mean... Each time we figure out a new technology, it's actually more difficult than it is kind of helper. And I'm thinking of all of the, you know, I mean, if you think of genetic testing, right, which came through technology, I mean, that's still working its way through. And now I think so many people are just confused on what it means anymore. You know yes. what I'm saying? It hasn't proven to be the boon to healthcare yet that people thought it would. I'll, yeah, I think we're starting to make some inroads, but it all, these things always turn out to be a lot slower than anybody um, anticipates. I think that's the key. Yes. The speed, you know, we all hear like the hockey stick curve and well, eventually it's just going to keep going up. And is that, what is that? Moore's law? Did I just make that up? Is that his law? What, the, yeah, that's right. Okay. Yeah. And, and things like that. So things are going to keep speeding up. But in terms of our daily lives, I mean, I've been for as long as I can remember kind of hearing that. So, yeah, but I think you, you know, you can't discount things like smartphones and yeah. GPS and, you know, we're talking on Skype, which is a pretty amazing um, invention. So I think things do make a difference, but um, it, it never quite happens as quickly as we would hope. And, you know, part of the problem with data is there is so much of it and, and more and more all the time, integrating it and make making sense of it is a really difficult and expensive thing to do right well i want to, now i will ask you the last question here um and it's actually about a, an older book you read that i recently found because i do kind of now i do some work with franklin covey on on this idea and the book is called the attention economy and how do you you know i know we don't have that would take a whole nother episode but what do you recommend to folks as, you know, you wrote that book in, I think, early 2000s. Um, now, yeah. you know, it, unfortunately, it? it came out. Uh, I think the publication date was September 12th, 2001. Oh. And for some reason, the world's attention was elsewhere. I'm not sure why. Yeah, but, uh, really? Wow. 
And, and so, yeah, on that note, now that technology is continuing to ramp up and it will keep keep doing so, is it even possible to maintain some level of attention? Well, I, you know, I think it's even more critical now than it was then. I, you know, I probably wrote that book too early. Um, but, you know, this idea that we can all sort of multitask our way through life with kind of um, continuous partial attention, it just doesn't work very well. And um, I, you know, now I go to um, meetings and so on where um, who, I was, I was, Mohammed Yunus, um, the guy who founded, you know, microcredit, got a Nobel Prize for it, um, uh, was at our Babson commencement last weekend. And he said um, something about turn off your smartphones and listen. And, you know, it's one of his biggest applause lines. Wow. <laughs> so I think we're starting to realize um, that multitasking our way through life um, demands more of our attention than than it's capable of giving, and we, we need to get better about it. But it is all very seductive and addictive and um, hard to do. Well, for that, folks, if you want more on that, you're just going to have to check out the old book, The Attention uh, Economy. If you can if you can find it. <laughs> if you can find it out there. Well, Tom, I really appreciate it. Again, the book is Only Humans Need Apply, Winners and Losers in the Age of Smart Machines. Is there anywhere else, you know, our listeners can read up on this topic or anywhere you would recommend, whether it be a blog that you have or, you know, do you do social, anything like that? Yeah, I write about this stuff on LinkedIn a lot okay. um, for a couple of couple of things a week on average. And so you can follow me on there if you want. And, um, you know, there is um, there a lot of other people sort of writing about this kind of Topic. My friends Eric Bryn Yolson and Andy McAfee wrote a good book called The Second Machine Age. Um, uh, there's a somewhat pessimistic book called um, Rise of the Robots by Martin Ford that I think, um, you know, if you really want to get depressed, hmm. that's that's your book. <laughs> so read his and then to kind of come back from the from the depths, read yours to see at least there might be a solution. There you go. <laughs> I love it again. Well, thank you for your time. Really appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Nice talking to you. It's All fun. right. You as well. Thanks again. Yeah. All right. Bye-bye. Hello. Welcome back. Hope you enjoyed that interview with Tom Davenport. Thanks for joining us today for another episode of Smart People Podcast. Please tell a friend. Put it on Twitter. Put it on Facebook. Say, hey, guys. Great podcast. You want to expand your brain? Check out Smart People Podcast. Also, the webinar is open to anyone. So if you think you know some entrepreneurs out there who would enjoy hearing from a proven entrepreneur, rich dude about how to get your business off the ground while not throwing everything else away. Tell them about our free webinar coming up on Friday, June 3rd at 2 p.m. Eastern. And remember, these webinars, we don't sell anything. This isn't your standard webinar where at the end we're going to spend 10 minutes selling you something, okay? It's just not how it goes. This is information, passing it along to you, trying to stimulate that curious mind. So we do that, do us a solid, let people know. Sign up for the webinar at smartpeoplepodcast.com slash Patrick. Thanks again. Catch you next week.